You're listening to audio from Kingsway Christian Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit kingswaychurch.org. Well, good morning, everybody. Wow, that was really good. So uh, my name is Matt Nakis. I'm the lead pastor here at Kingsway, in case you're visiting with us today. Wasn't that cool? See two people today getting baptized, in case you're celebrating online. It was awesome. Yeah, very cool. What a great day to do it, right? Thanksgiving Sunday. So as most of you got to experience this weekend, how many of you were doing online shopping instead of going out to the stores? Anybody? Anybody venture out into the Black Friday mess? Anybody? Anybody hate yourself for trying it? Anybody? I, uh, I love this time of the year and I hate this time of the year. I love it because we kind of uh, start to really look at family, all these plans, right? But it's also all that added stress. We literally put up our fall decorations really late. So we put them up and then seven days later took them down and then started our Christmas decorating. And then you got Thanksgiving stuff and you're planning for Christmas and you're buying presents and we're gonna go to my parents' house. And we're gonna go to Rachel's parents' house. And we're gonna do our own Christmas thing and everybody else is feeling stressed like me, right? And so we make these things up as Americans. All these things we have to see and experience a dude to have it all. And I just wonder sometimes if we really have it all or if we're really missing something. So let me just take you back. So I have three little boys, currently eight, seven, and almost four. And roughly, roughly a year and a half ago, two years ago, it was Christmas time, and uh, we went up to my parents' house. And so my sister and her husband, they have now three little girls at that time, two girls, and I have three boys. It's crazy. Like, she got all the girl jeans, we got all the boy jeans. I don't know how that happens. But anyway... We end up together, and I'm like cool Uncle Matt, and so my goal is always to play with the kids as much as possible. So there are benefits to being slightly taller than Tom Cruise. When you play hide and seek, you can actually find places to hide. My brother-in-law is like 6'2", 6'3", and he's much bigger than I am. He can't hide when we play hide and seek. It's like sit on the couch, put a blanket over him, hope nobody notices. I'm, however, finding all these cool spots in my mom's house. And so we were playing, and the kids eventually find me. And so we decided to play this one game. And, and this is the point where I'm going to ask my mom and my sister to turn off their computers, press pause, wait till I'm done, whatever it is, and then fast forward through the story. Because to this day, I think only my wife knows where I hid. I hid, and for I think it was 30 or 45 minutes, somewhere like that, no one found me. I finally came out, went downstairs, sat on the couch next to my dad, who was watching football the whole time, and just went, this was awesome. And the kids walk in, they're like, where were you? I'm like, you mean I wasn't here the whole time? So here's where I hid. I went upstairs to the closet in my sister's room. I went back, the closet was full of clothes because all the kids were out, my parents have moved everything over. And I went back to the very far corner and there was a picture frame in there. I just simply tipped the picture frame forward and I went and stood behind it. Well, the picture frame came up to about here. The clothes picked up at about here and I did my best to mimic the clothes but there's still this gap of my waist down to almost my knees that were completely exposed. In person after person, first the game started with the lights out. It was dark and they had flashlights and they'd come in and they'd shine a flashlight and they would shine it right on me. And I thought, man, this was way easier than I thought it was. They turned around and left. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Person after person after person. Eventually, they got the adults involved. I watched my brother-in-law, my sister, my mom, my wife, They even got to the point my brother-in-law grabbed the set of clothes like two in front of me, pulled them forward, looked, I'm watching him. He looked right at me and then went, I have no idea where he is. And I thought he must be playing along. When another 20 minutes went by, I thought they literally have no idea where I am. And I am in a serious cramp now (laughs) because I'm standing like a scarecrow in the closet. So I finally go downstairs, and to this day, nobody knows. I still get asked, where did you hide that one time? They're convinced that I found a hole in the wall, or or I went in the attic, or I went in the garage and sat in the car. They are convinced that I cheated somehow, and I was right there in plain sight. They shined their flashlights on me. Eventually, they turned every house, or every light in the house on in order to find me, and still couldn't find me. Now, here's the point. As we kind of look at today's message, I have this theory that we often do this with Jesus. We get this tunnel vision on life, whatever it is, all of life's circumstances and experiences and whatever it is. We even do this with the Bible. We take certain texts, and we cherry pick them, and we tunnel vision on them. Make them look like what we want them to look like, to say what we want them to say. So we don't have to deal with the real Jesus or what he wants to do in us. And I'm telling you today, if you do that, you could end up in a very, very dangerous place. You may actually miss the real Jesus. Here's what Jesus actually says about this kind of vision of life. Look at Matthew chapter 6, verse 22. Your eye is a lamp that provides light for your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is filled with light. But when your eye is unhealthy, your whole body is filled with darkness. And if the light you think you have is actually darkness, 
how deep that darkness is. Putting it in my own kind of metaphoric words here, it's as if Jesus is saying, if you actually think you're seeing clearly, but you're actually not seeing clearly, how dangerous that's gonna be for you. Could you imagine trying to drive and you don't see clearly? I remember a season when I didn't have LASIK yet and uh, I'd forgotten my glasses or my contact ripped. I had to take it out and you're driving down the road squinting as best as you can, trying to see clearly. And I'd always think if I ever get in an accident, I am so busted because I can't see further than just barely the car ahead of me right now. Everything is a blur. I just know where I'm going kind of by feel. This is not a good way to drive. Neither is it a good way to go through life. It's like trying to find something, but you can't seem to find it even though it's right in front of your eye. That's essentially what Jesus is saying. Well, I am convinced that many of us are living this way in America, oftentimes me included. So there's a no way this is a, not a statement of judgment or condemnation or condescension. I'm telling you, I can buy into it quickly. And we are sucked in by our culture. Between Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and all those other things out there, Snapchat, we are looking at other people's lives, or at least the part of their lives they want to show us, and so we're sucked into believing we need what they have so we can be happy, fulfilled, joyous, whatever it is in life. And consequently, we're looking through the lens of God, but our our glasses are dirty or mucky or whatever it is, and so we don't see things clearly. We get tunnel visioned on what we want it to be instead of what it actually is. A guy named David Platt, he he wrote a book called Radical. And I got to, just being honest, I had a love-hate relationship for the book. Part of my hate had to do with the way it convicted me. Part of my hate had to do with, I felt like David focused so greatly on what's going on around the world in missions, he missed what's happening in our own backyard here in America. So saying that, you need to read the book. Here's a quote from David Platt. On our last day, we will not wish we had made more money, acquired more stuff, lived more comfortably, taken more vacations, watched more television, pursued greater retirement, or been more successful in the eyes of this world. Instead, we will wish we had given more of ourselves to living for the day when every nation, tribe, people, and language will bow around the throne and sing the praises of the Savior who delights in radical obedience and the God who deserves eternal worship. If you're visiting with us today, I just want to say welcome to Kingsway. This is the last in our series uh, on this whole idea of blurred vision, this idea of trying to get a good view for what God wants to do in our lives, what God wants to do with us, in us, and through us. So if today is uncomfortable at all, come back next week, and we'll have a different, whole different sort of uncomfortableness for you. But it won't be on this topic. Let me bring you up to speed, though, in case you're watching online or visiting with us today and this is your first time hearing these messages. So the first three weeks, here's what I said to you. Number one, week one, I want you to set your highest values to match where you want to spend eternity. If you want to spend eternity with God in heaven, then set your values here on earth to match that. Number two, choose to put God first. Of all the value decision-based decisions you're ever going to make in your life, that is the most important. If you will seek first God in his kingdom, in his righteousness, everything else will work out for you. I promise. God promises. I've read you lots of passages on that. And number three, the way that we do this is we invest our resources, our time, our talents, and our treasure in the things that matter the most, the things that actually have the greatest return on investment. People. So today I want to build on those three things as we kind of move forward today. Let's do this by opening up Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, if you're already there, we read a little passage in there. Let's look at verse 19. Here's how Jesus deals with all this stuff. Don't store up treasures here on earth where moths eat them and rust destroys them, where thieves break in and steal. Store your treasures in heaven where moths and rust cannot destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. Wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will also be. So part of what Jesus is starting to build on is everything I've told you, plus he's saying this. You could literally drill a little hole, cut a little hole in your chest. I know that's gross. You could attach a little string to your heart and you could attach the other end to your wallet and you could just... Go ahead and follow them along. And wherever your wallet goes, it will lead your heart wherever it goes. That's exactly what Jesus is trying to say, because wherever your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, you may hear that verse and think to yourself, what the world does that mean, Jesus? But just unpack it for a minute. Think about everything that you invest in. Does it not have your attention? I mean, how many times, seriously, have you gone to Starbucks and, and you thought to yourself, oh, I love the taste of Starbucks. So you invest in Starbucks. And then you're sitting in work one day and you feel stressed and what's the first thing that pops into your mind? 
Starbucks. You're like, I don't want to admit it. I know where he's going with this. How about sports? For those of you men in the room, you know, you love the Colts or you love the Pacers or you love the Hoosiers or you love the Boilermakers or whoever it is. If I don't name the right team, sorry. Whoever it is that you love. And so you invest in them. You buy season tickets. You buy a paraphernalia. You're, you're wearing their garb. You're wearing their hats, their shirts, their stuff on the wall. But then aren't you tuned in all the time to see what they're doing? Aren't you watching? Are they winning? Are they losing? Don't you feel emotional? I mean, as I'm watching the Buckeyes in the first quarter go down 14 nothing yesterday, I'm emotionally invested. I have an entire room dedicated to them. I have a Buckeye bed. I have Buckeye things hanging on the wall, Buckeyes hats, Buckeye shirts, jerseys, watches, you name it. I grew up in Northeast Ohio. I'm a Buckeye fan has nothing to do with why I'm wearing red and gray today. I'm just saying, <laughs> if you were here early enough in the service, you will see that Chris Fowler and I were wearing the same colors and he's also a Buckeye fan. But anyway, your heart follows your treasure. This is why at Christmas, we spend way too much money buying presents for people who don't need stuff. But we love them, right? We want to impress them. We want them to be proud of us. So we invest in them. This is true, by the way, for hospitals. It could be breast cancer. It could be uh, orphan care, fostering, adopting. It could be uh, firemen, policemen, veterans, or people currently serving in the war. Whatever thing has captured your attention, you will invest in it. You will give to it. And then your heart will follow it. So consequently, you may care very much about um, racism in America. And so you see football players kneeling and you feel very, very, very passionate that they're kneeling for a good cause. But you may feel very passionate about the flag. You have kids who fought in the war, or maybe sons or daughters who are serving in the police force or whatever it is. So consequently, you feel offended, but then you start giving to the causes, right? So what happens eventually is your focus becomes tunnel visioned on whatever it is you're investing in. And the more money you give to it, the more heart you give to it. The more heart you give to it, the more money you give to it. And what Jesus is really trying to say to us, strip down all those things that I mentioned for a minute, because right now you're riled up, wondering where we stand, right? And just listen for a second. What Jesus is trying to say is, if you'll store your treasure in heaven, your heart will follow your treasure. And one day, your heart will catch up to your treasure, and there will be a glorious payoff when you get there. But then he goes on and he says this. It may sound very familiar to you. Look at verse uh, 22. Your eye is like a lamp that provides light for your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is filled with light. But when your eye is unhealthy, your whole body is filled with darkness. And if the light you think you have is actually darkness, how deep that darkness is. What Jesus is saying, don't miss this. See, when I first read those verses, you may not have thought they literally applied to money. But actually, they came right out of an entire conversation Jesus is having about money. And the reason is because I think it's so easy in this world to get tied up in things that don't really matter. And so consequently, you end up living your life in such a way that you believe you're doing good. And then the whole time God is whispering to you, he's bringing up passages that convict you. He's bringing books up and, and, and stories up and things that are moving and stirring in your heart. But you aren't responding because your wallet is attached to your heart. And your dollars have not shifted yet so that your heart has not shifted either. Your heart will always go where your dollars are. And then consequently, you don't realize how deep the darkness is that you're investing in things that don't have any eternal consequence, any eternal benefit. Again, guys, I'm guilty as charged. I've done well in some seasons and struggled in others. I'm not sitting here looking down on anybody. In fact, if anything, I wanna call all of us to just simply listen to the words of Jesus and respond however he tells us to respond. Look at the last thing he says here. Look at verse 24. No one can serve two masters, You'll either hate one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and be enslaved to money. Well, there's a comfort in this verse. And the comfort is, if you're not enslaved to money, whew, the discomfort, though, is what if you are enslaved to money? What if money really is driving you? And look, money plays out through things, possessions, stuff, resources, actual cash, credit. 
What if you actually are enslaved? Jesus says, you're either gonna hate God and love it, or you're gonna love God and hate it. Now, let's just be really clear for a second. Um, <clears throat> is money evil? No, it's literally just a thing. Is the internet evil? No, but it's a thing, and the thing can be used for good, or the thing can be used for evil. Is your car evil? Well, it might depend on whether your car's like mine, or <laughs> maybe somebody that actually runs. No, a car is just a thing. A house, it's just a thing. Clothing, it's just a thing. A purse, it's just a thing. Things can always be used for good or evil. The problem isn't the thing. The problem is always our heart, and our heart is attached to the thing. You see what Jesus is saying? Here's my little advice. You might be asking this question. What do I, what do, I do with this? Like, how do I know? How do I gauge whether or not I, I love money or whether I love God? I wish I could tell you it's simple. Just do, you know, add these things together. This plus this equals this. But you all know I can't do math. So it would never work if I gave you a math equation. <clears throat> there are actually five letters in trust. Have you heard this? If you've heard this. Some of you have no idea what I'm talking about. Go listen to last week's sermon. But here's a great piece of advice. Here's my piece of advice. You can add this to the other three from the last three weeks. Give up what you can't keep to gain what you can't lose. Give up what you can't keep to gain what you can't lose. This is a great way to evaluate how I'm doing. Am I more tempted to hang on to things that have no eternity attached to them or am I willing when the Lord speaks to give up things, to sell things, to give away things if they would bless and benefit God and his kingdom? This quote actually comes from a guy named um, Jim Elliott. It's similar to this. You may not have heard of Jim Elliott. They made a movie about the story of Jim Elliott and a friend of his, I think it was Steve Spear, I'm trying to remember now. And uh, the movie, I think, was called The End of the Spear, maybe? Anyway, no, Steve Saint, I think, was the name of the other guy. And in the movie, there are these missionaries, and they're trying to take the gospel to a people group who literally do not know God at all. They don't know Jesus at all. The only problem is this group is hostile. They kill often foreigners who get anywhere near their land. They actually came up with a plan for a while. They would literally come in kind of with a helicopter or whatever, and they would uh, try to drop uh, good things, food and other things to the people to try to build a bridge to them. They would yell out to them certain words they'd learn in their language that, to try to build this bridge. And eventually they land on a beach and, and kind of slowly build this relationship. Well, one time they kind of move into the beach area and decide they're just kind of slowly trying to work their way in. And one day they come out, and these two ladies come out of the woods. So it's great. They go out to meet these ladies, hopefully to build this bridge. And, and next thing they know, out comes running from the woods these men with spears and they throw the spears at them and kill all the missionaries. It turns out that the missionaries actually had guns on them could have pulled out their guns and killed the guys running at them with spears but they chose not to. They literally chose not to. They weren't caught off guard. They didn't lose the battle and the reason they chose not to is because they'd already made a decision that they would not use their guns to save their own lives against the people they were trying to reach because they knew that ultimately making that decision would send them to hell because they did not have the gospel. So they chose instead to allow them to throw their spears and ended up killing all the missionaries. Well, as the story goes on, a couple of the wives end up moving out there, developing a relationship, slowly moving in. One of the sons ends up getting baptized by one of the very men who threw spears at his dad and killed him. It's an amazing story of how the gospel went out. And it's Jim, one of those missionaries, Jim Elliott, who actually made this kind of phrase, a similar version of it, very popular. Because to Jim, the gospel was something real. It was tangible. It wasn't just a thing that was far off after, after life that occurred when you died. It was something that is here today, and it's in the lives of other people. And Jim actually lived what he preached. He wasn't just making it up. And here's the thing. When we hear stories about gems, I don't know about you, I've grown up in the church my whole life, going to camps, retreats, missionaries come through town, you know, evangelists coming in, whatever. I don't know your church story. This might be brand new for you, so you don't have that experience. But I would always hear these great stories of what other people were living and doing for God, and I would hear them and think, I want to do that. But as I said a couple weeks ago, it's so easy, isn't it? It would almost be easier to give my life for Jesus than to actually live my life for Jesus. 
Because to do that actually requires me to wrestle with really hard things. Like, do I love God or do I love money? Do I care more about stuff? Or do I care more about people? As I said a couple weeks ago, if somebody else were to really look at your bank statement, your bank account, see everything coming in and everything going out, would they make the evaluation that your life is marked by love of people? Or would they make the evaluation that your life is marked by stuff? (laughs) More and more and more consumption for you. And if so, then it's possible, quite possible, you do not yet have the heart of God. But see, it doesn't have to end there. See, if you've been doing this thing called Christianity, this thing called faith, this thing called church for a while, or even if you're new at this, you need to know the end game where God is leading you and he's leading me is to a place called transformation. He's leading us to the place where we can literally be transformed, changed by the gospel. But if we don't become transformed, if we stay where we are when we first met him or wherever you are today, just realize that's a really boring story. And nobody wants to watch that story. Nobody wants to live that story. Nobody wants to even read about or hear about that story. It's no fun to watch a story that has nothing to do with transformation. That's why a guy named Donald Miller, I've been quoting him throughout this book, throughout this book, throughout this series, I've been quoting his book. Let me say that. He says this, once you live a good story, you get a taste for a kind of meaning in life and you can't go back to being normal You can't go back to meaningless scenes stitched together by the forgettable thread of wasted time. Well, the Bible gives us ample examples of this playing out in our life. I want to look at one of those real quick. Turn with me to Luke chapter 18. Here we're going to see the interaction between Jesus and a guy who's living actually a very boring story. Luke chapter 18, verse 18 says this. Once a religious leader asked Jesus this question, good teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? (laughs) Why do you call me good? Jesus asked him. Only God is truly good. But to answer your question, you know the commandments. You must not commit adultery. You must not murder. You must not steal. You must not testify falsely. Honor your father and mother. The man replied, I've obeyed all these commandments since I was young. Verse 22, when Jesus heard this, he answered, liar. No, wait, he didn't actually say that. I'm sorry, he didn't actually say that. When Jesus heard his answer, he said, well, there's still one thing you haven't done. Sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. I don't know the first time you ever heard that verse, but doesn't it make you squirm a little bit? I I don't don't know what to do with that verse, Jesus. Like, uh, does that mean I should sell my house, my car, my clothes? I mean, like, am I supposed to walk around like naked and begging and that's the only way to please you? Let me unpack it a little bit for you. Here's where I've landed. Over the years, uh, 41 years now of being a human, uh, roughly I don't know, 30-something years of being a Christian, like actually gave my life to Jesus, kind of Christian. 18 years of being a pastor. Eight years of being your pastor. I've read commentaries. I've listened to sermons. I've heard people, godly men and godly women on both sides of this text basically do this pendulum swing with this text. In case you've never heard these discussions, let me just tell you the pendulums because I'm gonna guess everybody in here at some point or another has maybe heard these verses unpacked a little bit and I wanna give you some handles for what to do with them. So on one side of the pendulum swing, you've got the crowd that says, Jesus didn't mean what he said. And here's what they say. So when Jesus said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor, he didn't mean it. See, when Jesus told the man, you know what the commandments are, honor your father and mother, don't commit adultery, blah, blah, blah. And the man said, oh, I've done all those things. Jesus knew that he actually hadn't done all those things. Nobody's done all those things, not perfectly, except for Jesus, right? In fact, Jesus clarified, for instance, adultery isn't even just about the act of consummating a relationship. Adultery actually has more to do with your heart. That's why, men, you can actually look at a woman with lust in your heart and commit adultery with her, even though you never actually actually laid a hand on her. Those are Jesus's words. I'm not making those up. So therefore, we can look at it and say, Jesus was being hyperbolic. I think that's different. That's a chamber. He was full of hyperbole. (laughs) 
Jesus was being exaggerated. Jesus was just trying to make a point. He was trying to say, oh, really? You think you're perfect. Why don't you go sell everything you have and give it to the poor? And in that interpretation then, Jesus didn't mean what he said. He simply was trying to expose the deepest issue of the man's heart. Instead of embarrassing him or causing him shame and saying, you liar, I know about this time and this time and this time and this time, perhaps like he did with the woman at the well, but that was private. There was two of them. This is public and Jesus always protects the innocent from shame in case you haven't noticed that. He only exposes the shame of the Pharisees, the religious rulers who are burdening everybody else. Other than that, he protects people from public shame and embarrassment. And so in this moment, he's just trying to expose the man's real heart. That's one pendulum. Swing it over here. And the other side says, Jesus absolutely meant sell everything you have and give it to the poor. Look at his own life. Even Jesus says that he didn't have a place to lay his head. You know, the birds have nests, foxes have dens, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. Clearly, this is what he intended. The apostle Paul didn't even have a home. He was constantly making tents to just pay for ministry in everyday life, but he was constantly living on the edge. We all ought to live on the edge. Now, on this extreme, you've got people, especially financial planners in the room going, yes, preach it, brother. And on this extreme, you've got people who are maybe a little bit more needy in everyday life going, thank you, God, for your faithfulness and always showing up and meeting our needs. And it's funny how you could almost break down the way people interpret those texts by their economic status. Have you ever noticed that? So where's the truth behind this text? Which one is right? Could it be that there isn't a really easy answer? Could it just be that God never intended to give us a formula? Plug this in, do this, and everything will be perfect, but instead intended for us to lean into him, to open up our hearts and say, God, lead us. Reveal to us in this season what you want us to do. We trust that in the next season, you're gonna do something different. So we're just going to trust in this season, you're going to lead us. We're simply gonna ask you, how do we live in the light and in the truth of these texts? This text would seem to go along well with what I read you, I think it was last week, might have been the week before, and Jesus says, sell your possessions and give to those in need. Jesus didn't say in those texts, give away everything you have and give it to everything, everybody. Paul would argue with that later. Paul's trying to take up an offering for some people going through famine, some believers are really struggling. And he says, I want you to put money aside every day, every first day of the week. And when I come to you, you'll have a big offering gathered up that I will take to these other believers. And he clarifies, I'm not trying to tell you to become poor so they can become rich. I'm only trying to tell you that when others have a need, meet their needs. Because when you have a need, guess what they'll do back? So again, when you bring in the entirety of scripture, you don't just take a tunnel vision view and say, I'm gonna look at this passage to develop my entire theology around one passage. But you let the breadth of the gospels, the breadth of the teaching of the apostles, the breadth of scriptures come in to reveal who God is. Then you could say, this isn't easy. But I've gotta be really careful that I don't love money and not God. I've got to be really careful that I'm not just accumulating stuff or that I'm training and raising up my kids to accumulate stuff. Think about that this Christmas. I've got to actually teach and put into the values of my home that we love God and we are soft to whatever he says. I don't remember this story, but my mom tells me one year at Christmas, my mom and dad had just went in and went shopping with us at some store buying Christmas presents, maybe even groceries. I don't remember what they were buying. But when we came out, my dad met somebody in the parking lot, a family who was struggling. Not only did he give them money for gas and food, he ended up opening up the trunk and giving them all our Christmas presents. I don't remember that Christmas. I must have been really young because I think I would remember a presentless Christmas. But it's this whole idea of when you meet others, is your heart soft to what God might be doing in that moment? And if so, are you willing to respond? Bob Buford says this in his book, Halftime. I began asking myself questions like these. Am I listening for the still small voice? Is my work still the center of my life and identity? Do I have an eternal perspective as a prism through which I view my life? What is my truest purpose, my life work, my destiny, 
What does it really mean to have it all? Well, this particular man answered the question emphatically. Look at Luke 18, verse 23. But when the man heard this, he became very sad, for he was very rich. I need to say this in the last service. Um, I'm just going to take a guess real quick. I'm going to take a guess that you are richer than him. And you're like, what? You have no idea how much debt I have. Yeah, I didn't say you didn't have a lot of debt. I'm going to guess you have far more comfortable life of possessions than this man ever had. For one, you have indoor heating and air conditioning. Most of you, maybe there's exceptions. You have more than two pairs of clothing. The really wealthy back then would have had just a few, at best, pairs of clothing, a few. You have something called a car. You do not yet realize how big of a blessing that is. Many of you have more than one car and a bicycle and probably a skateboard and maybe some rollerblades. You had modes of transportation. You have indoor plumbing. Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> you have food in your refrigerator and in your pantry that could easily feed you not for one day, but possibly for weeks. There's been seasons where we were tight waiting for the next paycheck to come and we just said, all right, we can't afford to buy any more food. We're just gonna eat out of the cabinet and out of the fridge and we more than made it to the next paycheck. That's when you realize how much you've accumulated. You have entire rooms dedicated to holding stuff you don't know what to do with. You've put storage units in your backyard, your basements, off-sites, you name it. Trust me when I say you have more than this man ever dreamed of having. And yet when you hear his story, you picture him at some other economic level, don't you? We all do. I'm guilty. It's not like I'm different than you. I think of him in that other stratosphere. Whatever that number is that's bigger than me, that's where he is. And I think we're missing the point. We get so tunnel visioned, so tunnel visioned. We missed the bigger point. So what is the bigger point? Well, let's look at verse 24. When Jesus saw this, he said, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. In fact, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. <laughs> I'm not gonna ask anybody to raise their hand, but have you ever heard the rumor that what Jesus really meant here was that there used to be a gate that the camels had to get really low to go under and it was called the eye of the needle because it was so hard for the camel to go under. That's what Jesus meant. I don't I want to ask you to raise your hand. This has never been proven historically ever. Somebody somewhere made this up and it caught on because it sounds like such a great way to relieve the pressure of this text. So it just kind of kept spreading and spreading and spreading and spreading. To this day, if somebody has found it, I've not read about it. So if I'm wrong, feel free to let me know. But the last that I've studied this, nobody's ever found it. There's no architectural evidence that there's anywhere called an eye of a needle gates where Jesus is referring to. You know what Jesus is actually referring to? The eye of a needle, that tiny little thing where you string a needle through. And he's like, it's easier for a camel to fit through there than for a rich person to get into heaven. Why? It fits the analogy. Jesus isn't trying to be gross and squeeze down the camel into little tiny parts. Jesus is simply saying, it's really hard, right? In fact, you would say it's impossible for that to happen. But yet it's harder for a rich person to get into heaven. Why? Because he's building on this concept. Because you will either love God or you will love money. You can't love both. You can't love both. If your drive in life is more and it's not more God, guard your heart. Think now about stopping and taking a backward step. It's not too late. You're here. The transformation is still available to you. So <clears throat> yesterday, my family, we watched Cars 3. Anybody see Cars 3? Okay, this is gonna flop. I'm gonna do my best, set this up, all right? So Cars 3 was Cars 1, except for instead of being told from Lightning McQueen's perspective, it was told from Doc's perspective, except for that now Lightning is Doc. You're like, what in the world does that mean? All right, I'll do better, okay? Here's Cars 3 in a nutshell. <clears throat> Cars 3 in a nutshell is this. Lightning has won seven straight Piston Cups. Oh, the jokes. And 
Now he's towards the end of his life and he, he can't win. All of a sudden there's all these new cars coming in and they're bigger and they're better and they're faster and they're, and they're winning all the races. And so it's really a journey about a guy turning 41 and realizing that maybe he's not as young as he used to be. Wait a minute, that's not what I meant. And it's about Lightning McQueen realizing that no matter how hard he tries, he just doesn't have it anymore. Maybe the reason this movie was powerful for me is because I am 41 and I'm watching lightning. So eventually he ends up at a car accident trying to win a race and he can't win the race. And so he goes through a season of trying to repair, recover and everybody, all his friends are trying to talk him out of this wounded place. And now he's gonna give it one last go. And in this one last go, he's trying to train. The only problem is you can't get faster. You're either fast enough or you're not. And that's the problem. He simply doesn't have what it takes. And the whole movie, he's got this trainer. I'm like, I don't wanna ruin the movie for you, but I'm going to. He's got this trainer who's been trying to help him get in shape, but it dawns on him finally by the end of the movie that the trainer was really the point of the story. And now it's his job to take on Doc's role and it's his job to mentor the next generation so that the trainer can win the race. Now we get to the end of the movie and I'll stop there. There's this, you know, typical climactic Pixar moment where everything is glorious and, you know, you want to cry because I'm a man, I'm not allowed, and my wife's on the chair next to me, just, you know, tears are coming and it's like, it's good. You know, after the movie, I'm like, I didn't really like that movie. And she's like, what do you mean it was a really good movie? I'm like, well, first of all, it's the same story. They just recycled the story. And I'm mad. And the reason I'm mad, it wasn't until this morning, I'm on my way to church, I'm listening to a worship song. It wasn't until this morning that God spoke to me through the movie. I hate when he does that. He sneaks up on you, you know what I mean? It's like, pow. And here was the reason I didn't like the movie. I wanted Lightning McQueen to win. Nobody saw the movie, you don't get it. I didn't want the trainer to go on to win the race. I wanted him to win the race. I didn't want the bad guy who's arrogant and bragging to win the race. I wanted him to win the race. You know why? Because I want me to win the race. But what happens in the end is Light McQueen realizes that he has a glorious opportunity in front of him. His losing, so to speak, could bring winning for someone else. So just like at the end of the first movie, which I told you before, I bawled like a baby when it dawned on me one day it was the gospel in a Pixar movie. Lightning at the end of the first movie quits the race to go and serve someone else. He does it again. And I'm driving in this morning and I felt God say, Matt, the reason you love this kind of story is because there's transformation. Somebody who's struggling to get it, fighting against getting it, finally gets it. And they embrace it. And they go all in on what God wants to do in them. And the reason some of you are sitting there kind of pushing back, fighting back right now against this is because maybe like me, you're watching the movie, you're like, but I want to win. And maybe just like God was speaking to me this morning, you need to realize God wants you to let go. Because the way that you win isn't what you thought in the first place. The way that you win is actually by losing. I know, if you're sitting there like, this is radical, this is crazy. I know, Jesus said these things. Uh, the wisdom of God is foolishness to people of earth. But that's why it's the gospel. You wanna live, what do you do? Die. You wanna gain, what do you do? Lose. You wanna be free, what do you do? Surrender. Or, the Bible might say, become a slave. I am so confused. It's like an upside down kingdom where the least will be the greatest. Oh yeah, that ought to be in the Bible. Somebody ought to put that in there. <laughs> That's exactly what Jesus has been saying. Donald Miller in his book, A Million Miles, he, he says it this way. If the point of life is the same as the point of a story, the point of life is character transformation. If I get any comfort as I set out on my first story, it was that in nearly every story, the protagonist is transformed. He's a jerk at the beginning and nice at the end, or he's a coward at the beginning and brave at the end. If the character doesn't change, the story hasn't happened yet. And if story is derived from real life, if story is just condensed version of life, then life itself may be designed to change us so that we evolve from one kind of person to another. 
Now think about this for a minute. What if all of the moments of your life were actually constructed by God to transform you, but every time life got hard or awkward or painful and it left you wondering where God was and what he was doing, you saw it as God failing you, but it was actually God doing his best to change you. But the reason you never saw the fruit is because you wouldn't allow him to change you. One way to gauge this, it's not foolproof, but one way to gauge this is if God keeps leading you back to the same kind of thing over and over and over again, it's a usually a pretty good sign. He's trying to do something, but you didn't get it the first time around. It's kind of like the Israelites back in Egypt, and he kept saying, all right, another few more years out here because they don't get it yet. And he's not doing that to hurt you. He's doing it because he loves you. Let's take a look at our story because uh, we have some heroes who have not yet gotten their transformation. Look at Luke chapter 18, verse 26. Those who heard this said, then who in the world can be saved? <laughs> and he replied, what is it possible for camels or people is possible with God? Part of the reason I don't buy that whole camel gate thing is this. It's exactly what Jesus has been building to the whole time. It looks impossible for people with resources to get into heaven based off everything Jesus said. It, it looks impossible. Don't mince his words. Don't make them easy to swallow. They're not easy to swallow. They're hard. They're offensive. They're painful. You go, I don't even know if I can do that. And that's exactly what Jesus says. Exactly. You can't. But there's one who can do it in you. There's one who could change your heart, change your vision, open up your eyes so that you can see brighter, clearer, better perspective than ever before. Because what's impossible for you is not impossible for God. This is why I'm asking you, whether you ever see you again or this is it, whether you ever watch us again online or this is it, this is what I want you to do. I want you to trust God to do in you what you are struggling to do for him. I want you to trust God to do in you what you are struggling to do for him. And what I mean is this. Your heart and your desire may be crying out right now. You may be saying, God, I want to be more generous than I am, but I just don't have the resources. Then you're going to open up your heart and life and say, God, help me to see it the way you see it. So God, if I gotta sell something, I'm gonna sell it. If I'm gonna let go of something, I'm gonna let go of it. God, what is it I need to do to be responsive to how you're leading me? Father, I wanna be more generous, so would you give me more that I might do more with it and then see how God blesses you? I'll tell you this, God's rarely going to give you more than what you have right now until you're shown you're faithful with what you have. Jesus tells story after story after story affirming that, that when we're faithful with what he has given us, he can give us more because he knows we'll be faithful with it. But maybe your prayer needs to be, God, would you give me more that I might be a blessing? And maybe even, I'm not saying make a deal with God, but just let him know your intentions. God, if, if, if you will somehow give us the resources, here's my intention. I'm gonna do X, Y, Z with it. And then when he shows up, you better be ready. Because if God decides to rock your world by showing up, don't be playing with God. It doesn't go over well, let me tell you. I've been praying for you. I've been praying for weeks now that God would, would bless you beyond what you ever thought this season that some of you would get pay raises and, and bonuses and financial deals and things would just click and you wouldn't even know where it came from and your first thought would probably be, I'm gonna go on vacation, I'm gonna bless my family at Christmas, I'm gonna do whatever and then God's gonna get your heart and you're gonna go, you know what, I'm gonna invest this in God's kingdom. So if all of a sudden you get blessed, you could blame me. <laughs> but know that God has a plan for it. So here's how this plays out. Look at verse eight, uh, 28, 28. Peter said, uh, Jesus, we've left our homes to follow you. In other words, Peter's like, we're good, right? Verse 29, yes, Jesus replied. And I assure you, everyone who has given up house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God. And just stop before we get to the next verse. Go back, go back, go back. Is that not everything we are told as Americans we need to value? House, spouse, family, kids, parents. 
That's everything, right? If you have those things, you're good. As an American, congratulations, you succeeded. And Jesus says, anybody willing to give up these things for me? Look at the next verse, verse 30. Will be repaid many times over in this life and will have eternal life in the world to come. I don't know what to say. What does that mean that I'll be paid over many times in this life and eternal life in the world to come? So this is a great investment plan, right? So if I give to God today, he's gonna give me more tomorrow. That sounds good. I can't say that. Even though there are many false preachers today who will say that, I can't say that. Because I don't think the Bible says it emphatically, but there is a confidence here. Jesus promises he will not fail you. You don't have to worry about being generous, whether that means God will stop taking care of you. In fact, it's the opposite. If you're generous, God promises, if you're on my team, I'm on your team. If you lead out, I'll follow behind. I will not fail you. Trust me. Here's maybe the best way to say it, Jim Elliott. God always gives his best to those who leave the choice with him. I love that quote because what he's really trying to say is when I trust the giver to give however he sees fit, God always gives me better than I'd ever envisioned in the first place. But when I'm trying to control the outcomes, okay, God, I'm gonna, I'm gonna faithfully give this way. And then God says, I want you to do that. No, 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 I'm not gonna do that, but I will do it this way because I feel comfortable doing it this way. I feel good about doing it this way. I can control the outcomes doing it this way. And God's like, but you're not allowing me to unleash the blessing that I had intended for you. And you're going, but I don't see the fruit of that. I don't see the benefit of that. I don't know that I like that. I don't know that I agree with that. I don't know that I whatever with that. And God's going, I'm not asking you to tell me how to do it. I'm just asking you to trust me. And when you trust me, I will take care of everything else. So here's how I want to kind of close out today. We're, don't communion servers sit. Ha ha, how you like that? I just want you to sit for a minute. Because I want you to take part in this prayer. And then when I'm done praying, you're going to pray. And that's when the communion servers are going to get up and transition out. So you're going to have a few minutes for them to go out, prep the communion, come back in and serve you. You'll have a few minutes to do that. Here's what I just want to say real quick. First of all, um, you're going to notice as you leave today, there's boxes on the back walls. We've been kind of slowly installing them. They've got iPads on them. We'll talk more about this as we go into the future. Here's our dream for those boxes. Our dream is to get to the place where as a church, we don't have to, quote, unquote, take up an offering anymore. That through push pay and those boxes, your heart will already be invested in God's kingdom here at Kingsway. We're not going to have to put a moment in the service to say, now give, because your heart's already going to be there, and you're just going to take part in it, either online or through being generous. We're not removing generosity. We're just saying, you know what? In case you're visiting with us today or you're watching this online, it's really awkward when you show up and you're like, hey, it's my first time to church maybe ever, and somebody hands me a basket. It's like, what do I do with this? I guess I have to pay to go to church. And it's awkward. And what we want to do as a church is try to remove all the barriers between the gospel and people. And money, by the way, is a major barrier. Did you know this? You can't love God and money. So imagine everybody coming to our church who loves money and doesn't yet love God. I don't mean that offensively. That's why I'm picking Thanksgiving Day to say this. There's a little less visitors today. (laughs) We've just created a major barrier because we went right to the thing that's already between them and God. And instead of starting at God loves you, we started at here, give us your money. Are you with me? We want to do is raise up a group of people who are so generous that all we have to do is, is, is prompt them and they're, They're just doing it. It's coming out of the overflow of their love for God, not because we passed a basket to remind them that they love God. Does that make sense? And let me just commend you. This entire series was not birthed out of, again, out of any condensation. uh, Condensation, I think is what I just said. I wasn't looking down on you. How's that? There was no way was this chastising and no way was this rebuking. In fact, I want to say the opposite. I just saw a data point. I don't remember the exact number. And again, there's no math at Bible college. But Kingsway people per capita give more than two times what the average person in a church gives. Yeah, can we just stop and say, praise God for the generosity of this church. I am so proud to be your pastor. I don't know if I say that enough. I'm so honored to be here and get to share the gospel with you week in, week out. Thank you. This was not a series intended to chastise anybody, but it was a series intended to challenge us, me included, to say, lift your eyes from the earth to the skies. 
and trust your heavenly father has bigger plans for your life than you ever envisioned. Now, I wanna start a prayer. I want our communion service to stay for it. And then when I'm done praying, it's just gonna be silence. I'm gonna walk off stage. They'll probably be playing some music for you. You just talk to God. Because here's the dream. I long for a day when every seat in this room is filled I long for a day where we have to launch a third or a fourth or a fifth service or a second or a third or a fourth campus or whatever it is. Every Sunday that I'm here, except for one, because they were paving the school parking lot, I park across the street and I walk over here and I pray every Sunday, God, fill this parking lot with cars, cars full of people who don't know you. God, would you fill our parking lot to the overflow? Would you fill our kids' space to the point where we have to knock out more walls? God, would you make us uncomfortable, make us move rooms, move services, and do things that are really we hate doing because change is no fun? But God, would you keep doing it in us that we might stand before you one day and have a multitude of people who clearly, clearly met you because of us? Let's pray that. Father, Father, we just open up our hands to you. Do this right now. Take your hands, turn them up towards heaven. Put them in your lap, put them up. I don't care where you put them. Just open up your hands. Father, we open our hands to you. Sometimes we hang on to things, people, relationships, resources, money. And we think, God, that the only way life is gonna work is if we handle all the outcomes. But yet you call us at every turn to be faithful and to trust you. God, I pray, I pray you do something profound, something amazing in this church. God, stir in our hearts. Use us who are here today, God. We wanna be a part of what you're doing in this world. Move in us. Don't let us leave the way we came in. Bring about the transformation that we love to celebrate in movies and in TV. And the transformation that we long for in our own lives, but yet we fight against at every turn because it hurts to change. It's hard to change. Your change is always good. It's always for the better. So, Father, move in us, stir in us. Give us more than we ever dreamed you could give, and then, God, grow our dreams for your kingdom that we might be more generous than we'd ever thought possible. God, I pray for people in this room who are financially stressed. They've done poor planning and management for months or years. And they hear these messages and they want to align with your heart, but they don't know how to get out. God, I pray through things like Financial Peace University, the coaching of Dave Ramsey or Crown Financial or people in this church, or whatever it is, that they would take a faithful step today to unite with you and say, God, I don't want to live for stuff anymore. And they would turn their eyes to heaven. God, I thank you for the generous people of Kingsway. We have what we have because they have so faithfully given. Some throughout today have been here for over four decades. Some for over four weeks and everything in between, Father. And they've given faithfully that your ministries might go to the ends of the earth. God, would you continue to raise up our hearts, our eyes, that that would continue for years to come. We love you. Meet us in this place and hear our prayers in Jesus' name communion service you may go.